heard something. I think y'all know there's wildfires out in California, and it reminded me of something I already knew, but they were talking about how the fires were threatening the giant sequoias, but they're also hoping that the fire will release a lot of seed uh, because there's a lot of conifers that the only way the seed becomes viable and will start to grow is if it goes through a fire. You know, I don't know exactly how, well, I don't know if it's heat or if it burns off the testa or what, but that's the way it happens. But I, I had an interesting experience last night with the brother Joe Farley, turned 70, had his birthday party last night, and Joe was telling me uh, how, what he felt in coming to this place and uh, he was quoting the, the parable there, I think it's in Luke 14, about the man who prepares a great feast and, and uh, uh, he invites all the people, but they had a new wife, they had a team of oxen, everybody had excuses, they didn't come. The ones that were invited that could have come didn't come. And he got very angry and, and he said, go out, you know, and, and get the lame, get the sick, you know, all of those sort of things. And, and they come back and they say, the house still isn't full. And he said, well, then go out in the streets and the byways and compel them to come in. And Brother, uh, Brother Joe was telling me that he felt like we had compelled him to come into the community. I knew what he meant. He, he meant just the, 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 the love, the, the, what else could he do? But I told him at the time, it just popped into my head, I told him at the time, I said, really, you're not one of those that got compelled. You're, you're one of the sick and the lame and, and that. You know, those who recognize their need. Amen. And then I just threw out, I said, you know, it just dawns on me that what he's talking about there, it, when he says it, it compelled them to come in, he's really talking about what's going to happen in, in tribulation. I just threw that out. You know, that something's going to happen. Well, <laughs> this morning, I, when it occurred to me again, I happened to look it up. And uh, it's Anacazo, amen. And the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that this word in the Old Testament, Septuagint, and in Josephus was used of, quote, persecution and in the apocalyptic and romantic writings, messianic tribulation consisting of commotion and wars, pestilence and hunger, and apostasy from God. And the word is even used over in Luke 21 where it's talking about tribulation and, and great distress comes upon the world. It's, it's the same, same word, you know. And... and uh, you know, I just feel, I want to encourage us all that the story's not over when someone doesn't necessarily receive and respond properly to the word. If we feel God's love leading us to plant seed, know that those who can recognize their need, they may respond, but even so, the Bible tells us, do not weary in well-doing, amen. We have a call to be a witness on this earth. Amen. We have a duty. Amen. And many of the seeds that we have planted and are going to plant, they're not going to come up 
until the fire comes. Amen. 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 And then there's going to be a harvest that's going to wear us out. Amen. <laughs> Amen. 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 But God has His way. Every person who has any degree of honesty in them whatsoever, God's going to give them a chance. Amen. 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 We are called to be His witnesses on this earth. Amen. God give us grace to speak the word boldly. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. With such unity, the Lord brought back to my mind, Brother, Brother Leslie, you said that God had a grace here. But then you said that you referred to Luke 14 and the hesitation of the people to get on board the invitation that Jesus was making. And you said there may be ties that are binding us. And if we would let those ties go, God is going to give us that grace. <clears throat> And I thought immediately of what was already in my mind <laughs> prior to Brother Howard speaking, and that was Jonah's prayer in the belly of hell. And we all know it, we know it so well, but I was, I was pondering it again because he refers to how he almost missed grace. Do you remember what he said? What did he say? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And what's, what I was thinking about before Brother Howard stood was, do you think that Jonah walked down the gangplank and got on the ship with an, an Asherah gripped tightly in his hand, a little, little statue to Ishtar? you think that's what he had? You think he had a little bust of Nabu in his left hand? Clinging. What was he calling idols? Because he was clearly speaking of himself when he made that prayer from the belly of hell and God caused the fish to get a bellyache and Jonah to get a salvation. He was speaking of himself, wasn't he? 
What were the idols in Jonah's life? As far as we can tell, he woke up and God told him to do something. He said, I'm going to take a vacation first. Went to Tarshish. Everything went wrong. What were the idols that he was clinging to? It's quite a word, isn't it? One translation says, those who regard. But another says, those who cling to worthless idols. Something that he was attached to, something that he was clinging to, in a new circumstance, he suddenly said, these are worthless. These have no worth. I was clinging to this like it was the only thing that mattered in my life. But now I realize it is a worthless idol. What were his idols? His stubborn will and his selfishness. His idol was his will. It wasn't just his desire, wasn't just his hatred. It was his will. And that's all that broke when he came to repentance. He said, I surrender, I'm going to do it your way. And God made a way from the belly of hell to the same obedience he had shunned just a day before. Willfulness. Willfulness. The certainty in his own perspective. The confidence in his own way. The attachment to his own desires. That's, that's where the flesh is enthroned. That's where self sits on the throne. is through our will. Our willfulness. And he realized that his will was a worthless idol. You can't live with God's grace as long as you get your way. If you cling to your will, you eschew God's grace. You're either going to live by will or you're going to live by grace. But you can't have it both ways. God's grace and your will don't mix. They're like oil and water. They oppose each other. They repel each other. They get out of the same room and go opposite directions. Something's got to change in our will. I was speaking with my brother Nathaniel last night. We were talking until after 1 a.m. And we were talking about the familiar adage in a time of crisis that whines and says, where was God? And how many times even great people in pitiful plights have uttered that complaint. Where was God? And you can add on the end of that whatever you want Elie Wiesel said it about the Holocaust. Where was God in the Holocaust? And he called himself an agnostic. And you start to thinking and you say, God, where were you? 
And you hear Jonah say, God was everywhere where people weren't clinging to their worthless idols. Was it 1890 that Theodore Herzl wrote the petition, Jews, where are you? Okay, in 1917, after the First World War, the British who controlled Palestine opened the gates and let all the Jews of Europe know that they could come back to the homeland, back to Zion. And he said, Wiseman, Weizmann said, Jews, where are you? It's interesting that 20 years later, 30 years later, excuse me, 30 years later, the Jews were saying, where was God? But 30 years prior, God was saying, Jews, where are you? Where was God? He was scraping with the pilgrims in the swamps of Palestine, draining them for a promised land. And the day is going to come when the Christians are saying the exact same thing. They're going to stand in the streets of this country someday and say, where is God? Because they conceive of God as, my dad said, a big softy, a big protective shield who is supposed to insert himself wherever they plant themselves and protect them from the harm of their own choices. But that's not who God is. Nothing is going to befall God's people that he does not foresee, that he does not foretell, that he does not reveal through the mouth of his prophets. But those who have ears to hear are going to get up out of their comfort zone in Europe and they're going to make an exodus into a new land called Zion. I was reading this morning in the encyclopedia and I read several paragraphs that said opposition to Zionism before World War II. And two of the first entries described Jewish opposition to Zionism. And it one said religious opposition to Zionism. And they talked about how their doctrines had been changed to adapt to exile as a permanent state. And then the next heading said secular opposition to Zionism. And I'm paraphrasing, but they said that many of the secular Jews in Europe resented Zionism passionately because it disrupted their ultimate goal, which was citizenship and assimilation. It used both those words into the cultures where they belonged. You think there's a crowd out there that resents spiritual Zionism because it disrupts their assimilation and citizenship in this world where they really belong? Brother Tzafrir, a pillar in this church, a mouthpiece for the gospel, 
Brother Shahar, their great-grandfather, his grandfather, when he was 19 years old, became a Zionist. For many of the well-to-do families, Jewish families in Europe, they hated the Zionist movement. They were afraid of it like Americans are afraid of cults. They hated it. It was this dread. Don't throw away your life on a pipe dream. Those were the phrases that they would use when their youth would say, I want to go to a Zionist camp. What were they doing in those Zionist camps? They were learning how to be independent from a system that was going to devour them in less than 20 years. They were milking cows. They were learning to till fields and cultivate plants. And they were dancing the horror. When his grandfather left Poland, his Jewish family had been situated in Poland for over 800 years. 800 years. That's like from the 1300s, brothers and sisters. For 800 years, they had been ensconced in Polish culture, adopting the Polish customs, the Polish dress, the Polish, uh, uh, the Polish lifestyle, the Polish culture. And when his grandfather said he was going to Zion, going to, to Israel, just before the Holocaust, while the storm clouds of trouble were already on the horizon, his grandfather's parents, Brother Tzafir's great-grandparents, they laid down on the train tracks in front of the train. So desperate were they to keep their son from separating from a culture that was heading toward the gas chambers. They laid down on the train and said, you're going to have to drive over our bodies to go to that horrible place called Palestine. Now what kind of delusion? What kind of insanity? It only seems delusional and insane after the Holocaust. But it was the status quo. It was the way people thought before the fire came and caused the seed to be revealed. When he left and moved to Palestine and began to drain the swamps and began to be a participant in the kibbutzim, his parents who remained in Poland mourned for him for seven days in silent mourning, gathering around, weeping and wailing as one mourns for an only son. They mourned for him as if he were the one who died. When in fact, he was the only one making his way toward life. Now the Bible tells us, through the words of Paul, that it is going to be first the natural and then the spiritual. What happened with the exile of God's people in the diaspora of the nations, when the Jews were mixed among the nations and then a voice came and said, come out of her, and then a new land was established, 
through hard work and toil and perseverance and a lot of persecution, misunderstanding and disdain. That is a natural parable of what is supposed to be happening now in the Spirit. And those who are of the flesh always persecute those who are of the Spirit. They don't get it. They don't get it. What? What did his parents think of their displays and their melodrama and their opposition when the stormtroopers surged in in the Blitzkrieg and Warsaw fell in an afternoon? Amen. What did they think when the barbed wire was going up around the Jewish ghetto in Warsaw. What did they think? And did they say, where is God? Oh, they will. They will say, where is God? I imagine they thought much the same as the Jews who ignored the command of God through Moses when he said, rise up and put blood over your lintel and on the side... Amen. And stand and eat the Passover in haste with your belt girded and your staff ready. I imagine all of those who ignored that warning, who ignored that instruction and saw their firstborn die and saw the devastation that night. Maybe they were saying, where is God? Well, he's about midway to the Red Sea with Moses and the band of the obedient. Where are you? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. You see, when John Robinson blessed the voyagers to the new country and commissioned them to follow him as far as he followed God, followed Christ, and commissioned them to keep it as an article of their faith, that they would receive new light and truth which should break forth from God's holy word. And when he remained in Leiden with the majority of the congregation, I'm sure there were times where some in that congregation wondered what was happening over in America. Maybe after some years they got letters of the famine that took out half of them. Maybe they heard of the bickering and the conflicts. Maybe they received bad reports. But in time, there was nobody left of the Leiden congregation. If you go to Holland today and try to find that church, it doesn't exist. There's no such church because it was subsumed, swallowed up back into the entrails of the beast until it had no identity. Amen. Whatever privations we may face on the road to Zion, let us face them. Amen. Let us rejoice in them that we are counted worthy. Thank you, Jesus. Let us keep in mind what God is sparing us from in the years to come. For in the moment... Nobody will understand just how wise God's purpose is as we set out for that strange country. And what's going to keep you? Clinging to worthless idols.
clinging to worthless idols. That's what his great-grandparents were clinging to. And praise God, his grandfather lost his grip on those stupid idols of modernity, of wealth, of prestige. Praise God, because he wouldn't be here today. My brother's wife wouldn't be here today. What would we be as a people without the Yardins? Hallelujah. And all of those whom they have ministered to. And we can say the same of the Hirschtritz and the Hirsches and the Steins and the Shacks and all of our Jewish brothers and sisters, the Eisensteins. Somebody heard God. And they didn't wait until they were embroiled in the middle of a camp with barbed wire all around to take a step. Thank you, Jesus. They answered the question, where was God before Auschwitz was ever being built? Amen. I know that somebody would say this is hyperbolic, and, but you know, it's historic. It's reality. And it shows that things which seem radical to the point of absurdity seem strategic and wise once calamity has struck. And it shows what causes us to forfeit God's grace. For Jonah, it was his will. For the Jews in Europe, it was their assimilation and their identity, their mixed identity with a culture that truly hated them but that they were still striving to be one with. And so I feel the Lord asking us, is there anything we cling to that would keep us from the grace that could be ours? Is there any relationship? Is there any plan? Is there any idea? Is there anything Jesus said, he who would come after me must deny himself. If you're not denying your will, then you are denying your Lord. And if you are embracing him as Lord, you are denying your will. I shared with you the meaning of that word deny, which is the same word some months ago. I shared with you the meaning of that word deny, which is the same word that he uses when he says, whoever denies me, him I will deny before my Father and his holy angels. And the word means to disavow, to contradict, to oppose and go against Have you disavowed your ambitions? Have you contradicted the machinations, the reasoning of your own carnal mind? The crux of crucifixion for us is denying the lordship of our will. We cannot coexist in the same kingdom as kings and queens ourselves alongside the king of kings and lord of lords. In that day, 
Yahweh will be king, and his name, the only name, Zechariah said, when he spoke of the coming of Zion, the restoration of Zion. In that day, Yahweh will be king, and his name, the only name. Is Yahweh king? Is his name the only name? Is there any forfeiture of grace in your life? Define grace for us. What is grace? Charis. What is grace? Well, it is the power of God to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasures, to live sensibly and godly in this present age. Grace is a teaching agent. It is paideo. It teaches us. Grace is a teacher. It disciples us. Paideo. It trains us. Titus 2.11 says, amen? Grace is sustenance. It's what sustains us. Amen. Grace is always coupled with truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. I have committed you to the word of his grace, he says in Acts 26. Amen. What is grace? Is it permission to sin without consequences? No. It is that enabling of God's spirit that marks the difference between our desires and the realization of God's will. I want to please you. Grace says, here, you can do it. Grace is enabling us. By the grace of of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. How did Paul prove that God's grace was not vain in his life? For I worked harder than them all, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Grace is energizing. Grace is empowering. Grace is enabling. Amen. Grace latches hold of the hand of the one who says, I want to please God, and says, you can please God. Walk with grace. Is there anybody who doesn't have that grace? Well, then it's because there is some idol that you're clinging to. And to release that idol is to humble yourself and say, your will, your way, not mine. That's why James and Peter both quote the Old Testament when they tell us that God gives grace to the humble. The very first man who for whom the word grace is used, was a man preparing for a worldwide tragedy. Genesis tells us that the whole world was full of violence and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. People will translate it as God's favor, and that's definitely an apt description. It's just not a complete description. Because God's favor is not something that he just looks on us and says, oh, I like you. His favor is okay. You have positioned yourself relationally, and I am going to go ahead and give you what belongs to a son. I'm going to give you enabling grace, empowering grace, grace unto obedience, grace unto righteousness, grace unto salvation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, so he laid down and said, Honey, you know, 
a calamity's coming, but no problem, we live by grace. Well, should we call the lumber store and order some wood, go for wood? No, we live by grace. Remember? We're just going to sleep here and know that when the lightning starts flashing and the thunder starts clapping and the raindrops start falling and the animals gather outside in crazy numbers, we're just going to remind ourselves and rehearse endlessly that we live by grace. No, he wasn't an evangelical. He actually believed in the grace of God. By faith, Noah, when divinely warned about things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and built an ark. Faith doesn't tell you that you can sit there on your duff and claim some status with God. By faith, he moved. He was in one place, and when faith ignited in his heart, he got to another place. By grace, he did. He built. Grace sustained him for 120 years. Hammering, sawing, painting, planning, preparing. And when the calamity came, he was saved by grace. And that not of himself, it was the gift of God. Hallelujah. I want to be in the grace of God, do you? I want to be in the harismata, the power of the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And therefore, I want to shake out of my hands every idol that I would cling to. Every ambition, every vanity, shake it free from my hands so that I can run in the path of His commands. Hallelujah! One translation even renders the word idol there as vanities. Those who regard worthless vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah was saying, there was mercy that God had shown me. There was grace that was mine. It was my mercy. It was my opportunity. But I couldn't let go of my will. And here I am in the belly of hell. But in that revelation, he didn't wallow in his self-pity. He didn't dab his tears and talk about what might have been. There, in the entrails of a shark, he said, through prayers we don't even know how he uttered, I will sacrifice to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill my vows to Yahweh in the presence of his people. Just declaring these impossible things, but they were no longer impossible because humility had come and grace had come with it. And with grace, all things are possible. I'm going to do it, God. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, God. And the fish gets a bellyache and he does God's will. Amen. He didn't say, Lord, this is so horrible. If you'll change my situation, I'll try to serve you a second time. He didn't do that. He said, I will. I will do it. I will do it, God. I will do it, God. Amen. He put his foot. Well, there was no water to put it in. He was in the fish belly. But he just committed himself. He just threw himself in commitment. I'm going to do it, God. And he was vomited up on dry land. Well, that wasn't the end of his problems. This guy liked his will. And he knew his will. 
getting mad at God and, you know, just petulant. But I think Brother Howard told us that we can be consoled that in all likelihood he wrote the book. So he saw through the silly petulance, that silliness that the author causes the reader to feel like, oh, brother, come on, Jonah. Jonah made us feel that. He he knew what the problem was in the end. Amen. Lord, show us everything we cling to in our minds, in our past, in our future, in our plans, in our relationships. And right now, give us the grace to let them go. We want to be part of your ark. We want to be part of Zion. We want to get out of this culture. We want to get out of this place that is doomed. We want to be part of your people. We want to walk by grace through faith. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The Lord's going to show you what step, whether small or great, that you can take to mortify that flesh which shares the same root as mortuary or morgue. Kill that flesh. Humble it to the point of death was what mortify means. Humble that flesh to the point of death. Identify it as your arch enemy. Amen. Deny it. Contradict it. Oppose it. Argue against it. Don't act like you're the hapless slave of it. Buffet it and make it your slave so that you can do God's will. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Do you think it's a coincidence that in this meeting, the Lord supernaturally spoke through this brother and then supernaturally said, there's a grace here. Not knowing what I was going to speak, there's a grace here. But he said, God would, let, God would enable you to let go. Well, that's everything I'm saying to you again. Now in the mouth of three witnesses, and brother Zephyr also, do you trust me? Does anybody want to let go? Does anybody want to really just let go? Does anybody want to put it down? Amen. Does anybody want to take the risk to abandon the idols and take the hand of God completely? Amen. Jesus, your Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's take a minute and pray. And ask God to give us the courage to let go. The humility to let go. Amen. And the grace, the enabling power to take hold of His plan and will and fulfill it in our lives.